Um, well, we are continuing a sermon series called Know It All, What Happens When You Don't, uh, looking at a few people in Scripture um, who are infected with this um, disease, Know It All. Now, the truth is, that as I say the word Know It All, I think you probably all had, uh, you have an idea what that means. Uh, maybe even can think of someone in your life that, that is one, maybe. Um, know It All, it is a real thing, isn't it? In fact, the truth is, it's a clinical thing. Did you know that it was a clinical thing? I actually read this article in Psychology Today, um, written by a therapist by the name of Diane Barth. Listen to her description, um, her speaking. Jerry never met a problem she didn't know how to solve. Didn't matter if the difficulty was hers or someone else's, Jerry knew what needed to be done. It also didn't matter if she didn't know anything about the problem area. She still knew how to fix it. Or at least that's what she seemed to think. She was a smart woman. She was very hardworking. But she came to therapy because her life was not turning out the way she had expected. Despite knowing how to take care of everything and everyone else, she was suffering from a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. She couldn't fix herself, right? But listen to this. She could not take in anything I said. If I empathized with how she was feeling, she told me that I had missed the point. And if I offered a suggestion about something, she told me that she'd already tried it. At a party sometime after I began working with Jerry, I met Harry, who also seemed to think he knew everything. <laughs> after we exchanged pleasantries, and he discovered that I was a psychotherapist, he started to lecture me about Freud. Um, I'm actually always interested to hear what other people think about the field that I work in and its theories, but after 20 minutes, I realized that he knew a lot less than he thought he did. <laughs> and as I politely disengaged from this one-sided conversation, I found myself wondering what, what he wanted from me. Did he want admiration? Did he want applause? Maybe an argument? Was he showing off and that was a way of engaging with another person? Did he need me to keep me, need to keep me, and I assumed others, at a distance? Because that's what he was doing, right? He was keeping people at a distance with all of his knowledge. Know-it-all-ism. Probably what, what, not what the name is, right, of the condition. Know-it-all-ism. But it, it certainly is a real thing. And depending on the level of infection, and there obviously are differing degrees of this, this disease, <laughs> it affects our ability to listen. Our, it affects our ability to work with other people. I mean, doesn't it? And there's also an even darker side to this as well. As we discovered last week, it can how well we're able to listen to him, how well we respond to him and obey him. And as, example, as an example of that, last week we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. She thought um, Jesus being a Jewish man and, and her being a Samaritan woman, 
and a divorced one at that, and especially because Jesus was this important figure, the Messiah, right, that there was absolutely no way that he would want anything to do with her, right? There's just no way he would want anything to do with her. She just knew it. But she was wrong, right? She thought she knew, but she was wrong. And that really is a form of know-it-all, isn't it? The fact that she knew that she knew that she knew that it was the way, just the way it is. Uh, you know, I'm a divorced, I'm, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman. <laughs> There's just no way for me to have value to anyone, especially God, and to anyone that believes something different. She was willing to argue with Jesus about it, right? <laughs> and I asked you the, 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 this question last week. Where did she learn such things? How did she figure that out? The truth is that it's probably been reinforced in her life from the very beginning. People telling her that she just won't amount to anything. She believed it, right? I mean, you do see her traveling to this well by herself in the hottest part of the day. That's not a normal activity. <laughs> Usually a community activity that happens in the cool of the day. She resigned herself to be an outcast. She believed that that was true. She believed she was alone. Does knowing the truth about how God feels about you matter? It does, doesn't it? It matters a lot. <laughs> now let me ask you another question. And think about this one. Really important question. Does how the people of God treat those around them matter? One way or the other, the way people who are God-oriented treat others impacts those others, doesn't it? It makes them consider what God might actually be about. What God might actually think of them, right? Because God's representatives act that way, then God maybe, maybe that's the way God thinks about me as well. I mean, do you think that that's true? Think about this. While Jesus was on the planet, he ran across a group of people who adamantly believed in following God with their whole lives, adamantly believed it. And they've spent hours upon hours every day studying the law of God so they could meticulously follow each and every law, everything. And they even made up their own rules to follow, added some more stuff in there, wanting to, to show God just how good they were. Their purity before God was their highest goal. They, they wanted to get there, right? I mean, could you imagine such a people? What a blessing to God they must have been, right? What a blessing to our world they must have been. I mean, especially after reading through the Old Testament and seeing just how messed up the people of God are um, often, right? You would think that Jesus would have just been thrilled with these people. They wanted to follow God meticulously, right? But Jesus wasn't. In fact, the opposite was true. Jesus was more critical towards the Pharisees than any other group, right? I mean, how could that be possible? 
possible because they were the worst of know-it-alls. They were the worst of know-it-alls. They allowed their knowledge to puff themselves up. They, they looked down on everybody else that couldn't think about things as much as they could, right? They looked so highly on their own ability to self-discipline themselves that they began to look down on others who couldn't do the same thing. Unlike the know-it-alls from last week who didn't even think about being in a know-it-all, they just thought they knew something and they were wrong. <laughs> These guys, they know they know it all, right? They know they're smart. They, they know that they have all this information going around in their heads and they're willing to rub, rub it into other people's faces, right? Think about the description that Jesus gives in Luke 18. It's a teaching of Jesus. It's a parable of Jesus. And he specifically names the characters in the story. He's not afraid to say the words, <laughs> to tell people who they are in the story. Starting with verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Are you catching what Jesus is laying down here? <laughs> you can even, I mean, just think about this. These guys, they know it all. And they did it all. They followed the law of God. They did everything right. And they still did it all wrong. Think about their story. The Pharisee, what's he doing? He's going to church to pray. Is that such a bad thing? No, right? And he wasn't a robber. He wasn't an evildoer. He wasn't an adulterer. That's good, right? He didn't work for the Roman government like the tax collector. <laughs> he wasn't a traitor. He gave a tithe. He supported the God's work. Followed all the rules of the religion, right? But don't miss some of the telltale signs of where he wasn't right. For one, he stood by himself. Could that be read that he made sure that he wasn't contaminated by those who were less significant than him? Could that be a possibility? And think about his attitude. God, I thank you that I'm not like those other losers. Praise the Lord. Especially that tax collector over there. He insulted the tax collector at church, right? Why wasn't this Pharisee a good guy? He certainly looked good on the outside compared to this tax collector. What does Jesus say is the difference? Why does the tax collector stand in a more favorable position to God? It all comes down to pride versus humility. Thinking you know it all versus knowing you don't. Thinking you are better at following God's rules than all the other people 
and knowing you aren't. Knowing you need God's help versus believing that you've earned your place with God. Why was Jesus so rough on the Pharisees? I mean, think about it. Their very premise as a group is to be pure, to be perfect, to follow every law, to get everything right. That was their whole focus as a group. So what do they do? They scour every one of them. Perfect example of that would be the Sabbath, right? The Bible clearly tells the Israelites to, to observe the Sabbath. Don't work, don't, don't bear burdens, rest, keep the day holy. Well, for the Pharisees, it wasn't enough to say don't work. It wasn't enough to say don't bear burdens. These things had to be defined, right? We want to know exactly what... Well, maybe not. But, for instance, <laughs> to avoid work... One could only get milk enough for one swallow. If you'd swallow more than once, you're working. <laughs> That's a rule that they followed. <laughs> Another one, one could only carry a spoon weighing no more than a fig. Carry a spoon heavier than that, you're working. That's a burden. And all of these extra rules are gathered together in what they called the oral tradition or the tradition of the elders. And you'll see that mentioned in the rules that they talk about with Jesus in the New Testament. Get this, from the Ten Commandments, they end up with over 600 rules. Very specific things. Worse yet, these extra rules weren't written down in the time of Jesus. They weren't written down until a little bit later. They were called the Mishnah at that point. But because they weren't written down, how were people even supposed to know what the rules were that they were supposed to follow? Well, you had to be a part of the group, right? Unless the, the group came along, like they did many times with Jesus, and told, told, and told you, you idiot, you're doing it wrong. What are you doing? Why aren't you following the tradition of the elders? Talk about an ultimate know-it-all. Can you imagine going to Jesus and telling him that he's doing it wrong? I mean, think about that. Now, there's no question that God desires people to follow his plan for their lives. But he doesn't expect us to be perfect. You know how I know that? <laughs> think about it. His whole plan revolves around redemption. Redemption. Not us paying the price for ourselves, but Jesus paying the price for us. God's amazing grace. I mean, if, if there was some other way of doing it, do you think Jesus would have died? Scripture tells us that, right? Can you name a scripture that says that if you do everything perfectly right, that you will be saved? Anyone? There isn't one. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. <laughs> Why? So that no one can boast. I think God knew that if there would be a group come along that was able to pull it all off, that he didn't know that it would just wreck their lives. And where do they get off adding all these rules on top of God's rules, right? Who would do that? We certainly wouldn't do that today, would we? Think about it. Their whole system 
is built not so God could get the glory, but who would get the glory? They would. Look at me. I'm so good. I follow all the rules. I got here by myself. <laughs> We're doing. There's, there's a worse part to this. Think back to the question I asked you earlier. Does it matter how God's people treat others? Does it matter how God's people treat others? For a whole lot of people, who were the Pharisees? They were the people of God. They were leaders in their church. They represented God. The people around them came to understand what God was like by looking at how the Pharisees lived, what they taught, right? And you know what Jesus thought of that? <laughs> what they did? He didn't like it. In fact, it would be a lot more harsh than not liked it, right? In fact, <laughs> a really important passage for us on this topic is Matthew chapter 23. Jesus shares his feelings about the Pharisees, and it's not nice. It really isn't. He is brutal. And as we read it, remember who the representatives of God are today. Us, right? Do we have something to learn here? If so, we better learn it, right? Matthew 23, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. That's true, right? They're the leaders of the church. So in verse 3, So you must be careful to do every." But then he goes on to say what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads. They put them on other people's shoulders that they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Ouch, right? Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect and marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and all the rest of you are brothers and sisters. There's only one of you that's the rabbi, right? Capital R, <laughs> rabbi. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, capital F, right? Who's in heaven? Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We've heard that already, right? See what Jesus is getting at here? <laughs> if you think you're more important than others, wrong. <laughs> Get a clue. Get a grip here. Respect and honor comes from serving others. Doesn't come from titles. Doesn't come from places of power. Jesus is saying, get over yourself. God's the most important right? He's the teacher here. And Jesus is just getting started in the, here. He turns to the Pharisees and teachers of the law directly. And he offers them seven woes, not, not blessings, woes. Verse 13, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let others who enter, those enter who are trying to that's rough, right? That's a brutal statement. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa. Skip ahead to verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat that swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of, dead, of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Wow. What a metaphor, right? Whitewashed tombs. I mean, that's crazy to think about. <laughs> Beautiful on the outside, death on the inside. I was just thinking as I processed through this, kind of like painting over a mold problem in your bathroom, right? You go in and you paint over the mold problem, and it looks really, really good now. But it doesn't kill the mold, right? It only allows the mold to grow more. In the same way, performing the right behaviors, which the Pharisees were really good at, did not purify their hearts. Who purifies hearts? God does. That's his job. Verse 29, Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. They're telling, basically saying, hey, we wouldn't have killed those prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, <laughs> complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Wow. Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. You actually saw that in the book of Acts, right? As they were chasing Paul and his friends around. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this was pretty intense. These Pharisees were certainly woeful. <laughs> kind of a pun, sorry. But let's not just pick on the Pharisees. <laughs> what can we learn from this? If we want to avoid the same tongue lashing, <laughs> I think we better focus more on our relationship with God than on the rules. Can you say that? It is Jesus that is our hope. It is the Spirit of God who transforms us. 
stay humble. <laughs> Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, not through our own strength. And let me be clear here. This is not to say that we will continually sin and go out in thought, word, and deed till our dying breath. We aren't trying to make excuses for our sin, right? For living wrong. If you look at the Nazarenes, they are a very, very optimistic group. <laughs> very optimistic about what God can do with this difficult body, right? But it's not about our strength. Not about our ability. Our confidence is in what? Our confidence is in the amazing grace of God. God can and does transform us through the power of the Spirit of God. That's just it. It is His power, not ours. He gets the glory. Amen? And by the way, Jesus did say we should focus on certain commandments. Which ones did he say we should focus on? <laughs> Interestingly enough, he was talking to a group of Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, and he simplifies their list quite a bit, right? Verse, verse 35, Jesus, well, it says, one of them, an expert in the law, testing him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I mean, doesn't that sound better than that list of 600? I would take those two, right? Love God, love all people, simple enough. Isn't it just like Jesus to just kind of simplify it down for us? And then we can all be know-it-alls, because we know it. <laughs> So how about you? Where do you land on this topic? What is the first thing you notice about people? <laughs> you focus on how good they follow rules? Do you value the rules or the love of God and people? Should the rules really be our focus? Should the behavior of everyone around us be our focus? It certainly seems to be, right? Or maybe it should be the amazing grace of God who can transform any heart, any life, right? Our amazing God can do anything with anyone. Maybe it would be best to just introduce them to Jesus. Wouldn't that be a good place to start? How should the people of God who represent God treat those around them? In a way that represents Jesus well, right? and helps those around us think about God in a clearer light, in a better way, so that they may actually want to know our God, right? What is God speaking to you about this morning? Do you trust 
His grace. Pray with me. But God, we are so thankful that you are a loving God who cares about us. Whether we believe it or not, Scripture is clear that you care about us. You love us. And you not only love us, but you love the world. Lord God, would you help us to get this right? Would you help us to see things as you see them? Would you help us to be a people of God that represent you well? That somehow comes alongside of people that don't really look like they need to be loved or deserve to be loved, and yet you desire for us to love them. Lord, help us to be a light to this world. Lord God, would you just continue to do a work in our hearts so that we could truly love, <laughs> that we could trust in your amazing grace to not only transform our own lives, but transform those who we associate with. Lord, help us to love our neighbors. Lord God, we give you all the praise for the work that you're doing in and through us. Jesus' name, amen. Do you stand with me as we close? Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. Who raised us up? God did. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How do people know about his grace? in his kindness that he showed to us. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. People of God, we are blessed people, aren't we? We are loved people. We have this incredible God of mercy and grace and love, and he has created us to do good works by his grace. So let's be about his good works this week. Let's show the love of God to others. Amen.
to our senses.